Welcome to episode 121 of District of Conservation. This is your host, Gabriella Hoffman. As we enter Thanksgiving and as rifle season starts to take fold here in Virginia, I hope all of you are doing well given the circumstances and are spending as much time outdoors as you possibly can. I anticipate with perhaps the return of restrictions and clampdown on certain gatherings, we're going to see continued interest in the great outdoors, whether it be hiking, hunting, fishing, camping, and the like. And you should see where those opportunities are available, and I don't think you should be restricted to do that, but keep an eye out to see if uh, there are any roadblocks to you in terms of going outdoors, but you should be able to go outdoors uh, despite all the craziness happening in this country. But I figured I would dedicate this Monday episode to some moments of levity and discuss some interesting wildlife stories, whether it's related to hunting or not, or conservation or not, before the holiday. And then I think tomorrow I'm going to focus on two interesting topics one being the failed cancellation of Black Rifle Coffee Company that some on our side supposedly are engaging in. They're behaving no better than the censors they claim that they oppose. And then I'll also discuss, I believe, what we can expect to be possibly a top pick for Joe Biden's Department of Interior Secretary. There are a few names being floated three of which are from New Mexico. And I will examine that and see kind of what their background is and enlighten you guys about it and potentially what to expect if they really will represent sportsmen and women. Are they more tied to environmentalist, preservationist interests and much more? I'll keep in mind affiliations and other interesting factoids for you. We'll be fair, of course. I can be critical, but fair in that assessment, even if I disagree with the administration. But I think it's important to know who potentially will be leading the helms of our government come January. And as more nominees and other names are floated, we will continue to examine those individuals and their track records. But I brought on friend of the show, Cody McLaughlin, to talk about kind of some light stories or interesting stories from the year I think we discussed four stories that were recent or within the last 12 months, and I think you're going to appreciate it. We talked a little bit about our attitudes about kind of the current status of conservation, kind of the legacy of the last four years and what policies were enacted. Cody detailed the fact that he bought a house in Alaska that he's going to split his time between in terms of there and also his home state of New Jersey. So you'll hear more about that kind of what our hopes are for the future, how to stay positive when things don't go your way, politically or otherwise, and those four stories I alluded to. Here is our conversation with Cody McLaughlin. Check it out and stay tuned for tomorrow's episode on those two interesting stories that are unfolding. Go out um, just before the election, um, and I, I got an opportunity to... Uh, to harvest a, um, a nice eight point whitetail buck. Um, so that was fun. Um, you know, it was funny because, um, I totally goofed on it and, uh, and 
I didn't realize that it was, uh, I, I got my dates wrong and I thought I was out on the 30th. I thought, uh, and I ended up out on the 31st, which was the first day of permit bow season. So, um, I harvested a little bit smaller buck than I wanted. And it's funny because the big one came in right behind him and I was like, all right, well, I'll be back for him tomorrow. Uh, thinking it was the last day of fall bow season. And then, uh, um, when, uh, when I got down, found the, found the eight, I shot my, my cousin goes, you know, it's the first day of permit bow season. Right. And, uh, <laughs> and, um, I, I was kind of kicking myself over that. There's a beautiful nine point on that property, but hopefully he'll still be there. Uh, first day of gun season. Yeah. And as you know, I've been kind of riding high off of my first, uh, deer successfully harvested, nothing super impressive, but to me, it's still a trophy. And for those listening who are non-consumptive users, a trophy is a subjective term among hunters. This is what I've learned over the years. And a trophy can be a buck that it has eight or nine points or big points, or it could be something smaller. It could be a duck. It could be upland birds, etc. So a trophy is however you make it, but yeah, no, I mean, my, my doe certainly pales in comparison to, to any buck, but it's still fun to finally say that I clinched that little milestone that no I, way. yeah, you gotta, you gotta break the ice more of a, uh, learning curve. If you kind of become an onset adult onset hunter. Um, so, you know, I'm proud of you. That was a, that was a nice doe. And, uh, I think you'll, uh, you'll really enjoy a lot of the, a lot of the stuff you gotta, you gotta, um, let me know how that uh, tenderloin recipe go, uh, works out for you. I have 30 pounds to use. I mean, I'm not going to use it all in one setting because granted, I mean, we're already seeing a repeat of what happened in the spring. I posted on social media that uh, my local target had uh, emptied the shelves. People had like gone and done panic buying again. So I, I worry that we're going to have meat shortages again, because if everything is cyclical with respect to this, maybe not as, dire as it was when people had uncertainty over the pandemic, but it was just nuts to see a repeat of what we had in the spring, but hopefully no meat shortages. So I'm, I'm good to go with 30 pounds of venison and uh, I'm excited to see what I can make of it. Definitely some jerky tenderloin recipes. I have it all labeled because, uh, my new friend, David Walms from national wildlife federation was like, make sure on this specific cut, you don't do anything less than like prepare it in a steak form. <laughs> if you do anything less than that, it's going, I'm going to be mad at you or not mad at me, but he, he, he said, I'm going to like you, <laughs> make you feel guilty. But he's like, we specifically marked it for a reason. So it is what you know and, and what you have there. So no, I won't cook that improperly. I promise him and, and anyone listening. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it's it's going to be interesting to see what happens because I was reading, you know, for states, if you want to go across state lines, although friends have told me it won't be enforced. Like if you're going to Pennsylvania and you drive across state lines, you have to somehow demonstrate that you were tested or you have this other metric. But friends of mine assured me that there's no way that they can enforce this. <laughs> and I can imagine people are going to Pennsylvania to do Sunday hunting. They're going there to fish. They're going to the hunt. I have no idea if others have done stay-at-home orders or where they've required you to prove that you've been tested, uh, which I think is kind of, it, it's not like a repudiation of, you know, wanting to, for people to do that. If you want to do that by all means, but it's kind of difficult to do that. I don't know. And that could interrupt a lot of people's plans. If they're going there, or if they're going to other States where, uh, having this in a really short time frame could really complicate people's hunting trips and fishing trips, which allow you to do social distancing anyway. Right. 
I mean, look, outdoorsmen are the original uh, uh, social distancers, uh, and that's something I've been saying since the since the spring. Everybody, you know, all of my uh, all my non kind of hunting and fishing friends are all like, "Oh, how are you holding up with the pandemic?" And I was like, "Look, man, I really, honestly couldn't couldn't identify for you much of a much of a noticeable difference in my day to day, you know, from pre pre pandemic to post pandemic, you know." Um, I mean, other than just a little bit more fighting with the governor about uh, about whether we can keep these wild wild lands open for people to um, to do their social distancing the right way, um, you know, it's really it's really a, um, you know, all jokes aside, been a been a good year. I was I was just saying on a uh, on a work call where we kind of discussed what we were all thankful for. I've had a great year, uh, you know. I, uh, I killed it on a tuna trip this year. It was my first, uh, my first tuna trip. Um, we caught a bunch of yellowfin, filled the boat. Um, uh, you know, I took a once in a lifetime shot at a, uh, at a, a black and white koi while I was bow fishing, uh, be- harvested a beautiful, um, uh, beautiful, uh, eight point, uh, just, just a couple weeks ago. So, I mean, uh, the the worst part. Uh, oh, I just I just bought a home in Alaska. It's a lifelong dream that I'm going to be, hopefully, uh, this time next year, um, munching on caribou uh, tenderloin. Um, so, so we won't have you know, our correspondent from New Jersey then. So, you, are you <laughs> the full? Now you have a correspondent from Alaska now. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly, but but your uh, is it going to be your full time home? You were telling me about this, and I'm really excited for you, but. Uh, is it going to be your full-time home? Or are you going to split between the two? Yeah, I'm going to split, uh, split time between the two. Um, New Jersey is still my love and my lady. Um, I am, uh, I am, I'm your typical stereotypical Jersey guy, uh, in the regard that, uh, no other place will ever be anywhere close to home for me. Um, so, you know, it's, it's tough, but, uh, but I really, I've, I've wanted to do this for my whole life. I'm a huge fan of, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with him, uh, but Dick Pernecki, um, he, uh, his journals were actually turned into, uh, and his video journals too, uh, were, um, were turned into uh, a PBS special documentary called, uh, Alone in the Wilderness. And then, uh, uh, there's a, there's a book uh, made from his journals called One Man's Wilderness. And I've read three copies of that to Tatters. Um, and you know, it's just a, I've, I've always been very inspired by him, but, uh, his whole shtick was that he, uh, he decided that he wanted to go into the Alaskan wilderness after, um, you know, in his fifties, I think if so, uh, and build a cabin, um, and kind of live off the land, off the grid, uh, like 150 miles from the nearest town. His best friend, babe actually flew him in there. Um, and he used to drop off supplies, you know, once every couple months to him. And, um, uh, that's, that's kind of what, uh, uh, what my long-term life goal is. So this is just kind of one, one more step in that direction. Yeah. I'm going to be definitely curious about how that kind of journey works for you and what's to come of it, because yeah, Alaska is certainly a dream for a lot of people. So that's cool. You'll get to start living it. Yeah. You gotta, you gotta come up and do a uh, special. We'll do, uh, we'll do uh, a podcast while we're out, uh, camping or something you know around the campfire um we'll uh we'll we'll crush some uh some king salmon in the spring yeah that would be a dream it's on my list and hopefully you know when it's feasible to travel i will certainly take you up on that offer uh but without so much going into politics you know how are you feeling about let's say 
our efforts going forward kind of as a movement. I know uh, there's going to be some, let's say, obstacles for hunting and more so for the firearms industry, although I think record sales are going to be through the roof continuously unless we get some really bad executive orders coming through the pipeline. Although I can see a lot of resistance being mounted by law enforcement and others who do the enforcing of such laws, uh, certainly state legislatures and others who may file suit. Um, so that has me a little worried. I'm a little worried about some of the rollbacks that could come with some of the conservation and environmental gains that were made over the last few years. So that's kind of on my mind too. But I think people, you know, even with those challenges will probably be perhaps empowered to get involved in the electoral process, perhaps in the political process to starve off this type of challenge. But what are your sentiments about perhaps a changing political landscape? Yeah, so um, that's a tough one, you know, because anytime that you kind of have a change in leadership, you, you know, you, you'll probably end up seeing some things, you know, that are detrimental to the um to you know the movement right so um the good news is that you know um while the presidential election still seems to be up in the air um at least at least partially um you know we're lucky in that we we have at least kept the senate and we have willed down the liberal uh contingent of the house um significantly they still have a majority um but we do um have uh less ground to make up um, you know, by flipping um, from a from a vote flipping standpoint, uh, if we're going to stop some of these kind of humane society efforts and stuff. So, you know, while it's not an ideal scenario, I do think that um, that we're we're still in salvageable shape at the federal level. Um, things have actually improved on the state level. They, we won a couple of state um, uh, state caucuses, uh, or I'm sorry, state legislatures over um, to our columns. So. I think um, that'll improve things as well. Um, and frankly, uh, it's been a banner year for the outdoors, right? So like, I mean, more and more people are out fishing, more and more people are out hunting. Hopefully more and more people in record numbers are are, uh, are um, buying guns. Um, in addition to that, you're seeing already polls coming back that are, are seeing drastic drops in, uh, in support for anti-gun legislation. I'm pretty sure that that, has is mostly to do with the fact that more people are buying guns than ever before. So, um, so that's, that's good news. Uh, and hopefully we start to see that translated to other aspects as well. You know, like hopefully more people, the the more people that are outside hunting and fishing, the more people that are going to stop voting against those interests and, and start, start voting for pro conservation candidates. It'll certainly be an ordeal perhaps. Yeah, it is. It we we can look at this kind of in a half glass full view. I think um, perhaps it'll confirm a lot of doubts if people had any. Uh, perhaps get them more engaged in the electoral process. And I know in Virginia they just shut the nation's gun show here in my county, which is one of the biggest shows that happens every like six to eight weeks, and it draws in a lot of revenue. They could do it in a very safe manner. They could have everything be socially distanced, limit the amount of people. But I saw that our attorney general was glorifying the fact that I was so proud to ensure that this would be closed. And that's going to impact a lot of businesses, even those who are not directly in the firearms industry. There are a lot of exhibitors who are, I guess, in the knife making business and other similar trades. And uh, so you see that type of stuff and maybe it'll teach people and, and maybe give this 
serve as a teachable moment for them to not ignore what happens in their state or their localities. Um, and perhaps maybe that'll be a teachable moment because I know people, uh, without really going into the uh, 2020 election so much, they they wanted to have kind of a more calm presence. They didn't necessarily vote for policies. They voted for a candidate's removal versus in favor of, let's say, the incoming administration. So I I don't know how much voting against a candidate factored into people's decisions, but if that turned out to be true, uh, that'll be very interesting. But yeah, with respect to our issues, yeah, I think um, if people didn't see what we were talking about in terms of gun control and conservation, and let's say uh, government being more wedded into environmental solutions, I think we're going to see a return to that. And that kind of freaks me out. Uh, with what we had over the eight years of the Obama administration and how many different stakeholders were just pigeonholed and kind of removed from important conversations. So I, I see that being a troubling situation too, but perhaps it'll be a teachable moment for people. Yeah, I mean, one can only hope, right? So, Indeed. You know, um, and and look, I mean, every and this is a good call to action for you know for listeners is if you're an outdoorsy person and somebody's coming to you and asking you for kind of advice or what to do first steps next steps you know um now is the time to capitalize on that you know like i know that it's scary with COVID out there and stuff but you know you can you can do a lot of mentoring you know uh from a safe distance and and, and such um so we need as many kind of on door or uh adult onset out to outdoors people as possible. Um, and that's another happening I've seen this year, you know, so many people asking for advice. Oh, I want to go camping. I want to go hunting. I want to go fishing, you know? Um, and, uh, and the more people that do that, uh, the better it's going to be for us. Yeah. I'm really curious to see how those numbers in sales and license sales matriculate, how much in revenue generate for conservation dollars because they I, I remember reading like even from like a outdoor stockpiling standpoint like camping supplies were all sold out much like a lot of fishing tackle I remember going to like the local Walmart and seeing the shelves and aisles cleared they did stock a little bit but a lot of people had said from reports I'd seen or from kind of feedback I got on such phenomenon that uh a lot of those items were in high demand through the roof, unlike anything before. So it's going to be interesting to see what comes about it. If people uh, learn about the conservation aspect behind it, specifically with respect to hunting and fishing, uh, know where those monies are going to certainly taking more people. I haven't had an opportunity this year, unfortunately to take newbies hunting much or fishing much hunting because I'm still new to it. I'm, I need to first be a little more comfortable, but I've, told people in terms of mentorship, like here are the resources I used to begin my hunting journey, the courses I took, the online course, uh, other resources, people I look to in social media for good influences. If you want to just get a preview as to people who are leading by example and demonstrating like hunting prowess and also good conservation ethics and practices. So that's a good way too, especially if you're new and you're like, I'm still early in my hunting journey, but like here are people I can defer you to. Like I will happily defer people to you if they're in your area and anyone that I can try to find here, I try to do the same as well. I haven't really had much of people coming to me for hunting advice yet, but fishing is a little easier since I'm more experienced with that, but I haven't had a chance to take new people fishing. Although I got one of my friends interested in fly fishing, which I know you balk at. You think it's not <laughs> 
<laughs> not, you don't think it's real fishing. Although I like to have different types of styles in my arsenal. I still in <laughs> spin tackle, but you know, for, for trout fishing, I've just kind of grown to like that a lot because if I'm with people and I'm in like this wooded area and there's a lot of snagging branches, like I find that to be a little better now that I know how to do it. Uh, and not so much handling of live bait like it's a little easier when you're just dealing with a fly and you can just snip it off and and add there so it's a little easier less dirtying of your hands um although there's still a <laughs> behind that but uh i did take one friend who's also a bait and spin caster fly fishing a little bit although we didn't really have much luck except for me catching a catfish on a fly that was meant for a trout um, nice the local yeah urban fishery although someone told me that they'd stocked the urban fishery to me in Alexandria and like all the people just like outfished it. So there's, he said, don't go there, even though they just stocked it because you're not going to have any luck. I was like, okay, great. <laughs> good. to. Yeah. A lot of those stocked lakes are, you know, I mean, they're good because of accessibility, but like they end up being a waste of money because, you know, one or two things happens. Uh, the first one is what you just said, you know, they get overfished quickly in the, um, and you know, just poor, poor handling and stuff of the fish kind of, uh, if they're releasing them at all, um, uh, really does like kill them off. Um, but, but the other thing that happens is, uh, honestly, avian predation, you know, like we see a lot around here, those double crested cormorants just follow the stocking trucks around and just decimate them. You know, I was actually going to ask, do you eat catfish? I generally do. Uh, but I've learned not to eat catfish so close to DC or immediately below, uh, DC, like if you want to eat catfish, it has to be a little more inland or you want to eat like at least 50 miles downstream from the Potomac's headwaters because it's, yeah, it, there's a lot of PCBs. Um, I learned that from seeing the different warning signs, but when I first moved here, I did eat a few catfish from the Potomac, but I'm still here. <laughs> no mutation. Yeah. I think as long as you follow the, uh, yeah, there's a lot of commotion going on around here. Um, as long as you, uh, as long as you, uh, adhere to the, to the advisories, like a little bit, it's not going to kill you. I know that that sounds hilarious, uh, probably to many people, but, um, you know, um, it's, it's, it's not quite as terrible. I mean, the, especially the Potomac and a lot of these rivers, the Delaware, for instance, um, have done a great job of, uh, of moving these, uh, fisheries into the 21st century here. Um, so the, um, uh, I don't eat catfish. I don't like it. Nobody in my family really does. Um, I just catch them for fun. Um, so, or bow fishing. Uh, if I'm bow fishing and I shoot one, I usually give it away. Yeah, it's it's not everyone's cup of tea. It's really good. And I'm going to be kind of an advocate for that if we do talk about catfish in the podcast going forward <laughs> and in our storytelling segments. Uh, but yeah, it, you know, it's everyone's preference, what they want to eat, if they prefer to catch and release, um, definitely according to state guidelines, because generally speaking in most places, unless if it's a delayed harvest tributary or simply just a catch and release stream, most places you can, uh, put in take, keep fish and take some fish home with you as long as you're within the creel limit. So, um, people can fish to their heart's desire and it is a little easier because there is, is less of a barrier to entry. It's not as costly, but I think hunting is starting to become hopefully less intimidating and with fewer barriers to entry too. Uh, I mean, certainly with, if you're borrowing, let's say a rifle you're, with a hunting mentor, you're not just going out and randomly borrowing a rifle, but if you're hunting with a mentor, you can save a lot of expenses by leaning on them to 
to borrow their equipment or to borrow their tools, uh, such as firearms or bows. Uh, so you can save money early on in your hunting uh, journey to do that. Right. So let's kind of go into something a little more light and with some levity. So you wanted to come on the podcast largely today to discuss some interesting wildlife and hunting stories. What do you want to begin with first? Well, uh, I think uh, we'd, uh, we'd, we'd be doing ourselves a disservice if if we didn't uh, start with everybody's favorite anti-hunting city of New York. (laughs) Um, So I don't know uh, how much people have been following this. It's something I've been following and writing about for a little over a year now. Um, so the New York Parks Department, um, especially specifically Staten Island, yeah. have been um, uh, have been doing a vasectomy program for their for their deer for the past, um, I think I think two years now, um, and and it's their it's their answer to hunting, um, and they're just trying to reduce the deer population because deer in Staten Island are. I mean, they're destroying property. They're destroying, you know, they're way over carrying capacity. Um, and, and the car accidents are just through the roof. It's, it's, you know, proving to be a huge health hazard. So, uh, they've been actually, um, they've been working with this company called white Buffalo. Um, and, and who has been, I mean, and God bless them in capitalism. I want to say first off the bat. Okay. I may not agree with white, with white, what white Buffalo is doing. But um, I do think it is hilarious how much they're taking the, uh, these uh, um, these politicians in New York to the cleaners over this, uh, charging them millions of dollars per um, <laughs> per deer um, to uh, to get them to uh, basically castrate the bucks. Um, and it, the funniest part to me really is um, not just that uh, that the uh, the program is on the chopping block because of COVID cuts, thank God. Um, but really, um, it, it just came back into the uh, into light because um, there was a buck that swam over a beautiful, beautiful 10-point. Um, just an absolute New Jersey slammer. Um, came over um, the, the Hudson River from Staten Island. Uh, swam all the way here. And I had reporters calling me up the wazoo asking me what what is this deer why are there these huge tags on his ears and um and it it was a it was a funny story because none of the reporters really uh, no mainstream reporters really understand what conservation is how hunting works how these uh fish and game councils work like i mean most of them don't understand what conservation funding looks like uh the funding model the you know i had to explain the pitman robertson act several of them this year so it was it was so funny to me when they asked about this, and I said it was it's one of the Staten Island deer. Um, you can tell from the tags, <laughs> and and it, it's a good illustration that you know that deer don't recognize state lines. You know, a Staten Island buck isn't going to say, "Oh, can't go to Jersey. I'm uh, I'm under quarantine." You know, um, <laughs> they uh, they just swim across the Hudson whenever they want, um, which which just kind of illustrates that a lot of these human constructs that we try to that we try, that we try to apply to animals just it just doesn't work you know because uh, you know an animal doesn't doesn't realize that they're that they're on a human script right and uh, they don't have anthropomorphic qualities nor can they read signs <laughs> right oh yeah like the wildlife crossing things those are the funniest ones to me you know um, like an animal and look 
I've learned this from trapping for my whole life, you know, uh, is that an animal is going to go in the direction that is the, that is the quickest and easiest, uh, and safest for them. Right. So they don't like stepping over things. If you put a little, uh, if you find a Fox trail and you put one little stick in front of, uh, in front of him, he's going to go a completely different direction. doesn't even have to be a stick sticking up into the air. Like you just lay one on the, on the path and they're just, my animals are the laziest things around. Uh, is what I've learned. Um, and I think a lot of trappers would, would agree with me on that. Um, and, you know, and that's not a piece of perspective that you're going to get if you've never, if you've never been on your hands and knees in the dirt, looking down, a uh, looking down a path from a fox's point of view, you know? True. I want to talk about this kind of really cute story that I, I talked to you offline about. It's not really related to hunting, but we love wildlife. You know, hunters and anglers can appreciate wildlife. But uh, the Rockefeller Christmas tree, related to New York in a sense, uh, the Christmas tree that they chose was kind of flimsy, kind of dilapidated, and some argue it's kind of a metaphor for 2020. But according to news, uh, the little tiny owl, which they named Rockefeller, was discovered there. I think they discovered it like 170 miles away from where they picked up the tree. And it is a little North wheat owl. And uh, it's was found in the 75 foot Norway spruce that was cut in Oneota, New York and loaded onto a massive trailer before embarking on a 170 mile trip to Manhattan. And the bird is really cute. It's one of like the smallest little, I would say, birds of prey, uh, owl species there in the Northeast. And they decided to name it Rockefeller for where it was discovered. And it's called the Northern Sawwheat Owl. And they say that it's one of the smallest owl species in North America, especially in the Northeast. And it is now recovering in a rehabilitation center where they are giving it fluids and all the mice he will eat. It's super cute. It's one of probably the more positive, nice stories uh, to read of late. Nothing super crazy, but I think everyone listening will appreciate that. And I'll put any story that we allude to in the show notes. But I think this is really nice. It goes to show that uh, some little creatures are transcendent and uh, can, uh, and stories like this can make people, regardless of where how they feel or, or what they're feeling right now, kind of happy. Um, but that that's kind of a cute story going into Christmas. Who doesn't? Oh yeah, it's hilarious. I I love that, uh, especially like just the fact that the little guy like is just. Uh, I mean, he's. It was the crappiest tree in Rockefeller Center history, uh, and the fact that this kind of cute little guy came out of it, I think uh, it's almost. Uh, it's almost I think is going to be one of those uh, one of those stories that they that they figure out was a was um, totally staged. Uh, in years to come just to just to cheer people up in the crappiest year in memory yeah and maybe it's a metaphor that 2021 may be a little slightly better who knows like a glimmer of hope but yeah i figured that would be another one to include but how about you throw in another one sure uh so (laughs) you know i think um uh that that my favorite this year uh from a funny standpoint was just this uh you everybody's heard of jimmy seafood this this uh organ this restaurant that um that attacks pete all the time on twitter 
Um, if you haven't, you got to find Jimmy's Famous Seafood on Twitter and watch the stuff that they do because it's hilarious. One of the things I actually did this year was um, was come out with a Peter's Tears beer. Um, it's a it's a special brew. I still got to make a trip down to Maryland uh, to, uh, to enjoy a glass of it, uh, before leaving. But I mean, it's just, their trolling game is on point. Uh, I haven't seen a better one in the corporate world. Um, so, um, I've just, I'm, whoever's doing social media at Jimmy seafood, you gotta have them on the podcast. Um, cause those guys are just hilarious. Oh, cool. I should try to reach out to them because I think that would make for an interesting conversation. And uh, yeah, they they were very defensive about blue crabs. You don't go after blue crabs in Baltimore. That's like pr- a very unwise thing to do. So, but they have a fight with uh, Dave Portnoy from Barstool Sports. I don't know what that is all about, but I saw that <laughs> that they got into a tiff. Yeah, I wouldn't want to go uh, get into it on Jimmy C- uh, uh, with Jimmy Seafood on Twitter. <laughs> I'll, I'll say that right off the bat. I'm no shame in my game. Uh, those guys would destroy me and i'm one of the snarkier people on on twitter um so you know if i'm cowing from that fight then like dave portnoy should should uh watch watch out because those guys are gonna just i mean they're they're whoever is whoever is doing social media for jimmy seafood is not being paid enough i i can guarantee you not even having seen the number that is certainly true yeah we don't want to be on their bad side and i want to finish briefly with Another PETA story, but it's from Variety. And PETA is also, I mean, they're going to be irascible for the next few years, but they're kind of on the extremist lens. But they're trying to push for late night and daytime talk shows to normal uh, to not have wild animals on their shows. We see segments all the time with people bringing live animals. The Five did it with uh, Greg Gutfeld's Animals Are Great segment. I think it was Christmas last year. But it's a typical fixture on, on de- uh, daytime and, and late night shows. Who doesn't love seeing cute animals, whether they're exotic or domestic uh, animals, but they want to really pursue this aggressive agenda post-COVID with uh, seeing a positive change in the use of animals in TV and film. And they're going to try to push this. We'll see what happens with it. But I think a lot of the talk show insiders and people behind that are defending the practice. They're not going to allow PETA to bully them. PETA actually also bullied Yellowstone, which is one of my favorite TV shows. They bullied the the people behind that for saying that they were being cruel and unusual to certain animals featured there. Uh, but I think we're going to see some pushback from people in entertainment against PETA. So that's something to look out for too. But Cody, it has been fun talking about what's kind of on your mind, your house in Alaska, some of these crazy stories and remind everyone briefly, where can they connect with you? Yeah, so you can find me on uh, on Twitter at mclauugh19, mclauf19. Um, you can find me on Instagram at mclauf1969, um, and uh, you can find the organization I represent uh, on Twitter at NJ Sportsman, on Facebook at NJOA, and uh, you can find us on on the web at www.njoutdooralliance.org. Perfect. We appreciate you coming on again. <laughs> Thanks so much for spouting off on kind of what's on your mind and these interesting stories. And I hope you have a successful remainder of hunting and fishing season going into the holiday. Thanks for having me on. I I mean, at this point uh, I should be, I should be, you know, hiring Booker to get me on here uh, from, uh, from the guests I've seen on here. So you got, you're doing real great things with this podcast. Thank you, my friend. I appreciate it. Thanks. Cody. (laughs) All right. I appreciate you coming on.